Last week, we did a campaign. Uh, we did a, yeah, we were kind of culminated, I guess, a three-week campaign to raise funds to purchase a building in downtown Evansville. The campaign was called A Church for the City. A Church for the City. And um, people came, they gave, you gave last week for this campaign. We needed to raise $368,000 in order to be able to buy that building. Last week, we raised $368,000. So we're buying a building in downtown Evansville, the St. John's United Church of Christ. And uh, yeah, we're excited about that. But I have to tell you this, that I, you know, I, I was so excited that we raised $368,000. If you would have told me at the beginning of the campaign, you're going to raise $368,000, I would have said, oh, fantastic. If you would have told me you're going to raise $400,000 in this campaign, I would have said, no way, uh, you're crazy. This past uh, Sunday, we raised $400,000. Is that incredible or what? But i got to tell you, I'm still not done. If you would have told me we would raise $400,000, I'd have been like, oh my gosh, you're kidding me. We didn't just raise $400,000. To date, as of last night at midnight, I should say that, as of last night at midnight, we have raised $452,370.53, and that's incredible. That is incredible. Now, guys, I want to tell you something. You guys, this unbelievable that in three weeks of a campaign, we were able to do that. And, you know, I was talking to some friends of mine about it this past week, and, and I said, look, you know, you can't, there's just no way to describe this other than that this was a movement of God. Because it wasn't anything else but a movement of God. And I want to thank you so much for your generosity. I want to thank you for demonstrating that uh, we want to be a church in the city of Evansville. We want to be a church for the city of Evansville. And I cannot thank you enough for your generosity. And I think this is, this is the beginning of something great that God wants to do in the city of Evansville and for the city of Evansville. So thank you very, very much. I want you to know that you can continue uh, to give to this campaign. Uh, some, of you, some of you said, look, I, didn't, I don't have time. I didn't have time to to do it, or I wasn't going to be there that Sunday, you can continue to give. In fact, you can give today when we take the offering. Just make sure you mark on your check, or, or if you have cash, you know, put it in an envelope and, and, and say, Church for the City. Mark on your check, Church for the City. Or if you give online, you know, the Church for the City campaign, uh, just choose that box, and you can still give to that. Some of you said, I'd like to be able to give, but I'd like to be able to give over a period of time. You can do that. Just, uh, again, all the ways that I just uh, mentioned to designate uh, your gift continue to give to this because all of the money that is given will go toward uh, further renovations that we have to do. You know, so continue to give if you would like to do so, and we would be very, very grateful. But I want to thank you again. should mention to you that uh, next week, uh, the next two weeks, uh, I'm not going to be preaching. Sean Little is going to be preaching, and listen to the title of his series. It is called Seduction, Sex, and Silence. That's what he's going to be preaching on the next two weeks. You do not want to miss any sermon that has three S's in the title. So make sure that you're here 
for that sermon series, all right? Let's say a word of prayer, and then we're going to get to our passage today. Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we come before you, I come before you this morning, humbled by the generosity of this uh, congregation. Lord, we sense that this is a movement uh, that you have prompted, that it's not something that's just about us. It's, it's something that you have prompted. And Lord, I thank you for what you're doing. And, I, and I, Lord, I pray that we would be found faithful uh, in the years to come uh, to capitalize on this opportunity that you have given us to be a lampstand in the city of Evansville and a church for the city of Evansville. Lord, would you use us? Would you empower us by your Spirit? Would you let us always, cause us always to be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so, Lord, even this morning as we look into the Scriptures, uh, would you, by the power of your Spirit, open our hearts, our ears, and our minds? And our Lord, it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I have another announcement I want to make at the end of the service today. So in the interest of time, I just want to get straight to the passage that we're going to look at today. It's in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. Uh, and verse 1. If you have a Bible, and I know you do because you're bringing your Bibles to church these days. That was your New Year's resolution. And so you are bringing your Bible, hard copy or digital copy, you're bringing it to church every single Sunday. I know you are. So turn in it. Yeah, there you go. Mark chapter 2 and verse 1. If you're new to City Church or if you're just joining us uh, by our podcast, welcome. We are in a series in which we are walking through the first half of the Gospel of Mark. It's a fast-paced, action-packed account of the first three and a half years in the uh, ministry of Jesus. We want to see in this series who Jesus is based on an eyewitness account of him. Uh, We're not interested in who people today think Jesus is. We're not interested in who people want Jesus to be. We're interested in finding out who Jesus is. First hand, eyewitness account. Mark chapter 2, and let's start reading at verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, underline that phrase, did you know that you can see faith? Faith is not invisible. You can see faith. How do you see faith? You see faith by action. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were, notice what they're doing. So you got these four guys with a paralytic, and the four guys, I mean, they're moving. There's all sorts of action, hustle, bustle, getting up on the top of the roof, digging through it. The teachers of the law, on the other hand, were sitting there. There's the contrast that you want to see. They're sitting there, thinking to themselves, why does this man, why, excuse me, why does this fellow, you guys didn't know that these were kind of country guys, why did this feller, why did this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 8, immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take take up your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. 
He got up, took his mat, and he walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Okay, in the interest of just getting to it today, Mark wants us to see three things. He wants us to know three things about Jesus this morning. Here they are. I'm going to give them to you all three in advance, and I'm going to go through them one by one. Here they go. Here we go. Jesus will contradict you. He will not be who you want him to be. He will not do what you want him to do. He will contradict you. Okay, that's number one. Second, he will disrupt your model of reality. Okay, that's number two. And here's number three. He will have to die to forgive you. There we go. Jesus will contradict you. He will disrupt your model of reality. And he will have to die uh, to forgive you. Okay, I'm going to explain those. Let's start with the first. Jesus will contradict you. Let me ask you this question. What did the paralyzed man want from Jesus? Why did his friends bring him? What, why, why was he there? Why were they there? Why did they lower him through the roof? What was the point? What did, what did they want? It was for Jesus to heal his paralysis. This guy, more than anything else in the world, wanted to walk. Of course he did. That's, that's only natural, right? He's almost surely been saying to himself for many, many years, if, if only I could walk again, then my life would be all right. I'd never be unhappy again. I'd never be discontented. I would never complain. If only I could walk, then everything would be right in my life. And now, here he is in the presence of the one who can heal him. He is this close. He is this close to what he's been longing for, for who knows how long. And instead, Jesus says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. And somewhere, surely someone in the crowd went, Wah, wah. Can you imagine the disappointment and the confusion that this man must have felt in that moment? Like, he's like, he's like uh, you know, look... I don't know if he would have said anything to Jesus. He would have said, look, I mean, that's all well and good, but I've got a more pressing, more urgent need here. I'm paralyzed. I want to walk. That's my need. But by forgiving him, Jesus contradicts him. And he says, no, you you don't have a more pressing need. You think you know the main problem of your life, but you really don't. I mean, I know you have problems, I know you're suffering, but you need to realize that the main problem in your life, the main problem in a person's life is never their suffering, it's their sin. Now, try telling your friends and your family that, if they're suffering. They wouldn't want to hear that, would they? None of us want to hear, none of us want to hear that. But you see, if you don't, if you have a Jesus who can't contradict you, He can't change you either. And Jesus is going to change this man's life forever in just a few moments. See, here's the thing. We think, all of us do this, we think that the biggest problem we have is that we don't have something that we really, really want. And so we go to Jesus and we say to him, look, this here's my problem, it's right here, and uh, now give me what I want. But Jesus says to us through this paralytic, he says, no, no, you, you, you have to go a lot deeper than that. A lot deeper. 
than that. that. That's not your biggest problem. The Bible says that our deepest problem is that every one of us is building our identity on something besides Jesus. We're looking at something. All of us are. We're looking at something. For this man, it was to walk. Uh, some of us are saying, you know, I want to make it big in life. I've got, that's, that's my problem. I haven't made it big. I've got to make it big. Okay. Uh, so, some of us would say, I'm looking for a, a particular kind of relationship or, or maybe something else that will make us feel secure and significant, that will give our life meaning, that will validate us. And, and see, we would never use the term. We'd never say it this way. But what we're doing is we're looking to those things to save us. That's what we're doing. We want them to be our savior. We believe they can be, those things can be our savior. And as a result, if you never quite get them, you're always angry. You're always unhappy. There's always this feeling of emptiness. And there's always this feeling of discontentedness. But here's the thing. Here's the weird thing about this. If you do get them, you're even more unhappy. You know what you call that? If you get what you've always wanted and you're still unhappy, do you know what you call that? It's called a midlife crisis. That's what it is. It's a midlife crisis. You develop some idea of what will make your life meaningful, make you feel validated. You've got some image of, in your mind of what that will look like and you work and you work and you work and you work to get it. And then you get it only to realize that it didn't validate your life like you thought it would after all, and you still feel empty. And that emptiness, that desperation, that's what drives men to a midlife crisis. And women too, but I think it it often shows up more visibly in men's life. Drives you to this midlife crisis. And Jesus is challenging this man and us through him to look much deeper into our souls than we want to look, frankly. He's saying to this man, he's saying, by coming to me and simply asking for your body to be healed, you're not going deep enough. You have underestimated the depths of your longings. You're not going deep enough. I've got to take you deeper. You have to let me go all the way to your heart, Jesus says, and get this, you have to let me change the things that your heart wants. That's what's screwing you up. It's the stuff you think you want. That's what's screwing you up. Stop trying to reach this or that goal and and stop trying to use me to get your saviors. Your sin. Your sin is the source of your discontent. Your biggest problem is that you trust in other saviors other than me. Make me your real savior, Jesus says. And I'll fulfill you, and I will continue to forgive you, even when you fail me. And you see, what I, want you to, what I want you to see in this passage is that by contradicting this man's sense of his need, Jesus is able to change this man forever. Healing his paralysis would change him until the end of his life. Forgiving his sins changes him forever. You see, here's the thing. If you will let Jesus be who he is in your life, who he is, if you'll let him be who he is, not who you want him to be, not do the things that you think you need, but let him be who he is in your life, uh, he will surely contradict you, no, no question. But he will do so to change you forever. 
into the person that you've always wanted to be. He'll contradict you. He will. Jesus, this Jesus, will contradict you. I mean, the Jesus that you make up might not, but the Jesus in the Scriptures, he's going to contradict you. Here's the second thing Mark wants us to know about uh, this Jesus, about Jesus. That is, that he will disrupt your model of reality. He will disrupt your model of reality. I want you to notice in verse 7 the response of the teachers of the law to Jesus' statement that he forgives this man's sins. Verse 7. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Okay? Uh, last fall, when we were doing a series, some of you may remember, we did a series on the life of Joseph. It was called uh, The Life of Joe Jacobson. If you're new here, that's the kind of creativity you're going to get here on a weekly basis. See, the life of Joe, Joseph, Jacob's son. Go home and meditate on that a while if you're new here, okay? Yeah. Try finding another church in Evansville that has that kind of stuff, right? Okay. We did a series called The Life of Joe Jacobson, and and I mentioned in that series that God often uses a disrupting event in our lives to get our attention. And we defined a disrupting event this way, that a disrupting event is something that contradicts, there's that word again, contradicts, that it contradicts your model of reality. In other words, you encounter something that in your understanding of how life works uh, just can't happen or it shouldn't happen. And it smashes all of your paradigms and it disorients you. And it can be really, it can be very terrifying. Jesus extending forgiveness to this man is a disrupting event to these teachers of the law because they know full well what this means, which is why they internally scream to themselves, blasphemy, blasphemy. Okay, and here's the way I'm going to describe it. I want you to think about it in these terms, okay? Three guys, Tom, Dick, and Harry, they're all in a room, and uh, they get into an argument. Tom punches Dick smack in the mouth, blood everywhere. Harry says to Tom, Tom, I forgive you for punching Dick in the mouth. It's all right. It's over. You're forgiven. What's Dick going to say? Dick's going to say, Harry, you can't forgive him. Only I can forgive him. He didn't wrong you. He wronged me. You can only forgive a sin if it's against you. So stop forgiving him. Okay? That makes sense, right? Common sense. Okay? Everybody gets that. Okay? Do you know what Jesus is claiming when he looks at this man and he says, I forgive your sins. All of your sins now. You know, do you know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, all of your sins have been against me. Everything that you have ever done, every sin that you've ever committed, has been against me. Now, the only person who could possibly say to a human being that everything you've ever done wrong has been against me, the only person who could say that would be your creator, the person who made you. Who says, I made you for a purpose, and when you violate that purpose, you see you're violating the very thing that I made you for. Only your creator, only your Lord, only your God could say that. You see, Jesus Christ, by forgiving this man, is claiming 
to be God Almighty. And these teachers of the law know it full well. They realize that he's not just claiming to be a miracle worker. He's claiming to be the Lord of the universe, which is why they holler internally, blasphemy. He can't do that. Blasphemy. It's why they're infuriated, because he's claiming to be God. And see, this, this completely contradicts their model of reality. Because you see, what the teachers of the law, the religious establishment in Israel, could never get their heads or their hearts around was that the Messiah, the king of Israel, the king of the world, would ever contradict them. See, they could never get their heads around that. They could understand that the the Messiah would contradict everyone else, but they couldn't understand that he would contradict them. Therefore, Jesus can't possibly be the Messiah in their model of reality. And yet, here Jesus is, disrupting, turning their model of reality upside down. Jesus knows that they're having a hard time getting their heads and their hearts around this. And so to help them, to prove to them that he is indeed who he claims to be, he says to this man simply, get up and walk. Now understand something. There are, only, there are really only two ways to respond to some kind of disrupting event like this in your life. One is to refuse to see what God wants you to see. To just to, de- to, de- to deny it. The other is to believe and be transformed. Now, get this, this, this is a disruptive event in the paralytic's life too. I mean, he's never before met anyone who could heal his paralysis. But when Jesus says to him, take up your mat and walk, the paralytic's response is to believe. And as a result, he picks up the mat and he walks away physically and spiritually changed forever. But what about these teachers of the law. Remember, there's only two ways you could respond. One is to believe. One is to deny. What about the teachers of the law? How do they respond? Well, you know what? The text doesn't really tell us explicitly. Interestingly, Mark says in verse 12, he says, this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. But here's the question. By everyone, does he mean these teachers of the law? Or does he mean everyone else? It's not really clear. Maybe they were convinced. Maybe they believed. Or maybe they refuse to believe. It's hard to know. This issue of Jesus' claim to deity has been disruptive to a lot of people throughout history. In fact, uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, once published a version of the Bible with passages like this cut out of uh, his version of the Bible because he found them to be too incredulous. You see, there have been a lot of people throughout history, even a lot of people uh, even today, who are perfectly fine to let Jesus be a good model, to let him be a good example, uh, an inspirational leader of some kind, but they're not going to let him be God because that contradicts their model of reality. But here's something. If you hold that position, here's something that you need to know about Jesus. Mark says this. Jesus will never conform to your beliefs. Never. He will never conform to your beliefs. Your beliefs will have to conform to him. Okay? Let me say that again. Jesus will never conform to your beliefs. Your beliefs will have to conform to him. There's this scene um, back in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Exodus. In which God... Uh, reveals himself to Moses. 
And when he does, here's how God describes himself. He says, it's in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Don't turn there. I'll put it up here on the screen for you. He says, I am who I am. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting that he doesn't say, I am whoever you want me to be. If you want me to be all loving and good all the time, and if you want me to never judge people, I'll be that. If you want me to be predictable and come through for you in any way you want me to come through for you whenever you want it, I'll be that. If you just want me to be an inspiration, I'll be that. No, he doesn't say any of those things. He says, I am who I am. And so, The onus is on you and me to get to know him as he has revealed himself to be, not who we want him to be. See, there's there's nothing more important in this life than knowing Jesus for who he is and thinking about him correctly. If you don't understand him correctly, at worst you will miscalculate all of your life and spend an eternity regretting that you never knew him for who he revealed himself to be. At worst, at best, you'll find yourself fragile, always living in fear, despairing and confounded and confused when he doesn't do for you what you think he should do for you. Jesus disrupts your model of reality so that you will fall on your knees and worship him for who he is, not who you want him to be. Last thing, Mark wants us to understand that Jesus will have to die uh, to forgive you. I want you to notice one of the questions that Jesus asks these teachers of the law. I'm going to tell you something. If you ever want to do a study that would be fascinating and life-changing for you, go through the Gospels and just highlight the questions that Jesus asks and meditate and contemplate on those questions because they are profound and they always take you places you don't think you, you, don't think you can go. Okay, watch this. He asks them this, verse 9. Which is easy? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? So which is easier? Your sins are forgiven. Or... Get up, take your mat, you paralyzed person, and walk, which is easy. That's the answer. Be careful, be careful, okay? Because I know what you're thinking. At first, you're thinking, well, that's that's obvious. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. I mean, you know, who can verify that? I mean, anyone can say that, but not anyone can heal a paralytic. I mean, that's... That's verifiable, and and so it's obvious that it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven than to say get up, take your mat, and walk. But if you just let this question linger with you for a bit, I think you will realize that Jesus is wanting to take you someplace um, that you wouldn't ordinarily go. He wants you to think about something for a minute. The answer isn't so obvious. Think about it, okay? Just think about it. What does Jesus have to do to heal this man's paralysis? Check it. What does he have to do? All he has to do is speak, and the man is healed. That's it. Okay. Like creation, back in Genesis 1, all God had to do was speak it into existence, and it happened. All Jesus has to do here is say, get up and walk, and, 
Dude walks, right? Now think about this. Think about this. Can sin be forgiven that effortlessly? Okay, think about it. Can sin be, can Jesus forgive sin so effortlessly? Can he just speak this man's sin away? Now, I ask you that because here's something. People who are wrestling with Christianity um, and who object to the whole idea of Jesus having to die on the cross for the sins of humanity, um, here's what they will often ask. They'll say, look, he's God. Why can't, why can't God just forgive without Jesus having to die? But if you think about it, you can, no one can do that. right? No one, think about it. Someone, someone sins against you. Uh, a friend steals your boyfriend away. Uh, an uncle molested you when you were young. Your husband leaves you in midlife for a younger woman. Can you just forgive without someone having to pay a cost, a price for that? Can, can you do that? Of, of course not. And if you think about it, when you forgive, you know, like you say, okay, I'm going to forgive. When you forgive, you pay the price. For their sin, don't you? You absorb the price. You suffer the pain of their sin. Okay? In choosing to forgive, to not exact revenge and to make them pay for it, you have to absorb the cost. You suffer. Okay? Forgiveness is always costly. And see, likewise, God could not forgive without suffering because all of your sins, all of my sins, are against Him personally. And so when Jesus asked this question, the shadow of the cross for the first time looms in the background in the gospel of Mark. Which is easier? To forgive sins? Or to say to this man, take up your mat and walk? Which is easier? It's going to be much harder for Jesus to affect the forgiveness of this man's sin. Because to do so, he's going to have to die on a cross for the sins of this man and for the sins of humanity. In a sense, if you think about this, in a sense, it was easier for God to create the universe, to bring it into existence, than it was for him to forgive the sins of humanity. He could just speak creation into existence. But to forgive the sins of humanity, he would have to sacrifice his son on a cross. In what would become the single most disruptive event in all of human history, God in the person of Jesus will die on a cross and absorb the cost of human sin himself. So that this man and you and I can be forgiven. Jesus Christ says, you think you know what you really need, but you don't. I'm not going to play the practical joke of giving what you think is the deepest desire of your heart. I'm not going to give you that until I change the deepest desire of your heart. So that the deepest desire of your heart is me. And then, and only then, can you know a little bit of what paradise is? 
Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? For those who are here this morning, that perhaps what we have seen in the text today is maybe that maybe it contradicts you. Maybe you've thought my biggest need is something. All of a sudden, for the first time, you hear that maybe your biggest need is something deeper than you've ever thought. Maybe you need forgiveness of sins. Maybe that's your deepest need. For those of you who are here this morning, that perhaps what we've read in the text this morning disrupts your model of reality. You never, never considered the fact that Jesus could actually be God. I want you to just take a moment this morning. Maybe it has to linger with you for the rest of the day, for the, for the week. I want you to consider this morning for the first time perhaps that the only way that your sins could be forgiven, the only way that the bridge between you and God could be crossed was for Jesus to die on a cross. And you can believe this morning in the privacy of your seat You can just simply say, Lord Jesus, I believe. You are God in the flesh. You have the authority to forgive sin. And it took your death for my sins to be forgiven. I believe, Lord Jesus. For those of you this morning that, you know, maybe, maybe you came in here thinking one thing was your need, and you've, you've believed in Jesus, but... You came in here this morning thinking that one particular thing was your need. Maybe this morning you see that there's something deeper. Would you just have the courage to say that to Jesus? Just say, Jesus, change me in the way that you would change me. Do what you need to do in my life. Not what I think you need to do, but do what you need to do. Be you, Jesus, in my life. Don't be the Jesus that I want you to be. Be you, Jesus. Would you just convey that to him this morning in the privacy of your heart? Lord Jesus Christ, would you move in our midst? Would you move in our hearts? Lord, we all come in here with preconceived ideas of who you are. Lord, we want to encounter who you are, Lord Jesus Christ, as you are. Forgive us for thinking wrongly of you. Forgive us for trying to create you in our own image. Forgive us for trying to get you to conform to our beliefs, Lord we recognize that we are guilty of that. Change us this morning. Lord, we want to be conformed to who you are. We want our beliefs to be conformed to you. And Lord, as a result of that, we can be high and lifted up, exalted in our church, exalted in our lives in such a way that drives us to be the kind of church, the kind of people that changes the city, both by our words, but also by our deeds, that the city of Evansville could actually see our faith they too could be amazed and that they too could praise God because of what they have seen happen in our lives. And Lord Jesus Christ, it's in your name that we worship and pray this morning.